Imagine a world where the mind is the scene of the crime and it's inspired by the works of Stanley Kubrick, James Bond, and it captured the best elements of Ocean's Eleven. In 2010, theater goers were introduced to Inception, writer-director Christopher Nolan's massive critical and box office hit that propelled the Dark Knight director from a talented auteur to one of the most powerful voices working in the film industry today. How does Inception hold up 10 years later? Where does it fit into Nolan's ongoing oeuvre and perhaps maybe the most hotly debated question related to Inception, does that top keep spinning or does it fall? I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and this is the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. In today's special episode, we'll be joined by Alexandra Bohannon, Lauren Chapman, and Joe Light to explore our take on the answers to those questions before we lay down our final verdict. Is Inception one of the great timeless blockbusters, or is it one of those that's better left to the past? All of that and more coming up next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of the Cinematic Schematic. Today, we'll be taking a look at one of Christopher Nolan's most famous original films, Inception, on its 10th anniversary. We'll discuss our experiences with the film leading up to its July 16, 2010 release, and our reaction to this rewatch before we go even deeper by taking a look at some of the more memorable and pressing ideas in the film. All of this will be leading up to the answer to the big question, does the film still hold up 10 years later? We couldn't look back at the Inception 10th anniversary. We couldn't look back at the film 10 years later on our own. So, of course, we are joined by a fantastic cast of uh, special guests today. First up, we have, of course, the man, uh, the writer-director of uh, Freak AF and You People, Laron Chapman. Laron, welcome back. Oh, my gosh. It's good to hear your voice. It's been way too long. Way too long. No, absolutely. It's a uh, pandemic has uh, kept us apart, but uh, through the, the the beautiful magic of the internet, we are talking about Inception. And we're also going to be joined by uh, another voice that is familiar to listeners. Uh, we're joined by uh, the Cinematropolis's Alexandra Bohannon. Alex, welcome back. Hi, uh, this is Alexandra Bohannon reporting in live from my uh, spare bedroom <laughs> across the interwave, internet waves. Man, I, I have to say, I might be a little rusty at podcasting, but I'm really excited to talk to you today, Caleb, about Inception. <laughs> Lastly, <laughs> I am so thrilled to be rejoined by uh, No Film School in the Cinematropolis is Joe Light. Joe, welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me again. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. And um, it's funny, Alex, you mentioned that. I, I was thinking, I can't remember when I was like putting together this episode, it was like uh, someone put Inception on their top 10 of the 2010s. Uh, list when we, we did that at the at the end of the last year we were doing like a survey from people around the Oklahoma scene a few people from friends around the internet saying hey like what are your favorite films of the decade uh, and Inception uh, made a couple of the lists and I was like okay well Inception's definitely uh, you know to be a little selfish here definitely one of my favorite films of the last decade even though I didn't put it on my list uh, so um, yeah I, I this has been um kind of a, uh, a particular discussion I've been looking forward to having for a while. And then wouldn't you know it, it's somehow, even though in pandemic 2020, it's the, the 10th anniversary still sneaks up on you. So here we are. Uh, and of course, listeners are going to be listening to this on the 10th anniversary um, of the film, uh, July 16th. So we're really excited. Let's really just break the ice on 
Inception. I want to get some context for listeners. I want some context because I actually don't know your Inception journeys. What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. An idea can transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Which is why I have to steal it. This film, of course, was marketed under the tagline, Your Mind is the Scene of the Crime. And it was from the director of The Dark Knight and then starred the well-known stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, Marion Cotillard, and Ken Watanabe. Uh, and then there was also Michael Caine, who is... The, I think this is the the, the, the film where it's finally, they're finally like, all right, this is... Michael Caine is a staple of a Christopher Nolan movie. But also they had uh, new hot and up-and-comers at the time, Ellen Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Tom Hardy. It was definitely uh, a pretty all-star cast and a good mix of of what people knew worked, but also uh, a mix of people who people. I think most everyone knew who Ellen Page and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were. Maybe not Tom Hardy, but we're like, huh, yeah, it's gonna be good to see these guys on a film again. Um, but let's just let's let's uh, talk about the the first teaser trailer. This teaser trailer doesn't really tell you anything. In classic Christopher Nolan form, it tells you absolutely nothing about the film. It is. I don't even think it's actually the Inception score. It's a song that definitely seems like it's they were consistent with the themes of the score, but it's just like a lot of the big bombastic uh, bassy sound. And then hit Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, just like looking in various directions. And the thing I, that stuck out to me, though, is he's talking about breaking in and stealing an idea. So let's get, go around the table here, um, starting with Laurent. Uh, did you catch the teaser trailer for the movie before you saw the film? Uh, or or maybe you didn't see this teaser trailer, but you saw another trailer. Uh, I, I feel like I saw anything that was put out about it at the time. Um, uh, and my impression with it, because I was a fan of his by that point, you know, um, I felt like he kind of reinvigorated the comic book movie scene. Um, and so to seeing him do another, you know, another genre film was really exciting. But I felt like the trailer itself... Nolan is so clever is too clever for spoilers you know like anything he shows you you know is gonna be enough to kind of intrigue you but again it's not gonna con you're not gonna be able to conjure anything about the plot necessarily because he won't he won't he won't reveal those things he's better at just more evoking kind of like mood and tone you know and so you you have an idea of how the movie's gonna make you feel you know yeah yeah most definitely and I think this is I think this is especially where, and again, we'll get probably more into this later, but this is where you really start to see Nolan's approach to marketing. Because I think The Dark Knight, which was his previous film in 2008, right before this, that one, they marketed, I don't think they marketed a ton about like the plot, but they definitely marketed the heck out of Heath Ledger's Joker um, for that film. So it definitely was, you had a better idea stepping into that movie or even Batman Begins. You kind of knew what you were going to get versus... Uh, you know, Inception and later Interstellar and 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 Tenant even like when you when you see the trailer, you're like, I don't know. I mean, it looks awesome, but I don't know what it is. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think that's a, a very notable. Uh, he's keeping it ambiguous, uh, focusing on the tone and like finding clever ways to communicate the kind of concept of the movie without being explicit of what, what the core concept is. It's really weird. Um, but uh, okay, yeah, yeah, I think that's um a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, Alexandra, how about you? 
So I refreshed myself on this specific trailer um, in prep, and I realized that, well, for one, like you said, it kind of, yeah, it's not that it misrepresents what the movie is, because I think it's so much more than just necessarily Cobb's story at times, but um, yeah, it's not exactly, ah, this nails exactly what I saw on screen. Um, But I do remember, like, I actually do have an explicit memory after seeing this specific trailer of that title graphic at the very end where Inception turns out the word Inception is made into a maze, Um, which I always found it strange that that was never kind of brought back for like, I had to look at like, oh, what was the release, Blu-ray release? It was just Inception, like in red on like that kind of grayed out monochrome background um but i specifically remember the maze graphic um when watching it and and of course that kind of thing just makes you heightened and makes you want to see see more but but yeah it's like you said it's kind of hard to spoil something like this where it's so vague which i appreciate More, more trailers should take a page out of this book um but yeah that's kind of where my experience with this particular piece of marketing um yeah yeah and uh i i think i think that would probably be consistent for a lot but i hadn't even noticed the maze thing because i i you know it is something i recall when when looking at the the trailer alex i'm glad you brought that up but yeah it it wasn't consistent in future marketing materials or at least like kind of the 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 posters or anything like that uh joe how about you did you catch this trailer what was your kind of response oh yeah for sure i can't remember what when it was that I saw it, but I remember I like Laron was already a fan by this time. So I knew that it was something I was going to see. And I think what was most compelling, even though it is vague and it is mostly just Leonardo DiCaprio, like the imagery is so strong in all of the, across the marketing material for this movie. I think we're kind of living through it again, almost with Tenet because the marketing is based a lot on vague ideas and sort of hints and these strong images that you don't know where exactly where they're coming from or where they're placed, but they're so compelling on their own that you're thinking, I do want to see that movie. So that's kind of what I was like going into it. I know I didn't spoil myself going into this movie uh, like I have with other Nolan films. So uh, yeah, I was excited and I really enjoyed the marketing campaign for this. This was probably the first film I think I decided I saw the, the teaser and I was like, I am going to as much as I can avoid other trailers um, because I wanted to be surprised. And especially seeing having seen The Prestige, which was one of known his uh, more recent um, original screenplays, I guess you would you would say like it wasn't uh, it wasn't based off of like a comic book like, the, you know, Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. And I was saying, wow, that movie blew me away. And I had, and when I saw that movie the first time, I had no idea what it was about. I didn't even know it was about magicians. Uh, so I wanted to kind of recreate that same experience. And I think the re- the beautiful thing about this teaser is you can watch it. You say, I know it's doing with dreams. I know it's going to be big. I know Leo's in it and the music's going to be really cool. So, so I'm there. Listeners, you know a little bit more about where we're coming from and our experience with, with the promotional materials and, and Christopher Nolan. When we see... Uh, you think about um, Christopher Nolan's journey, like as a director, he went from being, he made, he made like his own little indie film, The Falling, which is kind of a calling card that got him the money and the backing he needed to do Memento, uh, which led to Insomnia. And then he gets Batman Begins, which by the way, Batman Begins made a lot of money, but it wasn't like a runaway box office hit. It was fine. But 
he then gets the prestige, which does fine. And then the Dark Knight, which of course was a runaway success. I think, you know, there's a lot of factors we, we could we could go into there. It might be another podcast. Um, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker was uh, I mean, especially it was already a highly anticipated film just because the Joker looked so different from what had been done before, but also with Heath Ledger's passing, it only kind of added to the momentum and interest, I think, of of the mainstream. And of course, that movie, Dark The Dark Knight, 2008, was very, very well received. That leads to the question, like, what are we going to do next? When are we going to get our uh, our next Batman sequel, especially the way The Dark Knight ends? They, Chris Nolan, he's got to make another movie. He's I, I need to see where they're going to pick up. And he says, nope, I'm going to go do my own film, Inception. Uh, it's, this is actually a, a script that he'd been working on for, uh, according to him in, in an interview in 2010, he'd been kind of piecing it together for over 10 years. We were probably saying, all right, well, he's making an original film. It's not a Batman film. Uh, what's he gonna what is this going to be like you know because it also looked very big budget uh, so uh i'll start with you uh, on this one first joe when you when you saw inception what was your reaction it was this something like were you excited about it because it was original were you did you think it, it paid off or, or or were you out there thinking man i really wish i would have got my my dark knight sequel sooner i mean I, I was excited about the film being original i think i'm just somebody who is always desperate for there to be original films out so I, I mean like we had that amazing year with there will be blood and no country for old man i know country is based on a book obviously but um i'm just always desperate still constantly for just something original like something not based on ip so for me going into this i was already kind of mostly buying into it i think just the fact that it was something that was so ambitious and something that was so original uh yeah, I my reaction was very positive. I think, <laughs> unlike um, my uh, my now husband is very negative about this film. So and it's still pretty negative. Uh, I think we may have even see saw it together. I can't remember. You guys are still together. Yeah. Congratulations, <laughs> you survived the inception debate. It's a challenging one to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still fighting about that. But um, yeah, no, I I was very uh, I was very excited about the film going in and very pleased. To, with it coming out. Fantastic. Uh, Alexandra, how about you? What was your take when you, when you saw Inception for the first time? Sure. Um, so at the end of when we, uh, Batman Begins happened, I have never been a very, not that I dislike that movie. I just have a lot of weird emotions about that movie. And so I, going into The Dark Knight, I had, again, it was something that's like, oh, I wasn't really, hankering for more um so i i did like that film so whenever i'm at the end of the dark night i wasn't like man chris nolan should just drop everything and make more batman movies i was not that was not my big ask you know and so uh when we got inception um i think my my family had like a thing for in, uh chris nolan because i remember they rented the prestige like from our local movie gallery um back in when we were in high school yeah the deepest cuts movie gallery <laughs> um <laughs> back in my day you had to go somewhere else to rent movies instead of your house your tv um anyway but we uh we got the movie and so i think it was a pretty natural evolution i think i saw it maybe with my parents uh, inception and all that to say i was blown away i wasn't demanding another batman so i wasn't disappointed by this original um feature and I have to say it was, it was just, I didn't know that movies could be made that way. Um, movies that were 
as wholly original, I, I know he Nolan has cribbed on other pieces that are intertwined within Inception, maybe, but um, I didn't know that that was possible to make something that felt totally different from everything else I had really seen at the time that that felt thoughtful that that felt like it was trying to get at maybe bigger questions um at and it had it was standing on its own two legs not supported by uh you know the machine of referencing um like big ips like batman or i guess we weren't really into superhero time you know i think iron man is 2008 maybe um so we weren't we weren't really on that road yet, but yeah, I, I'm thankful for this film. I'm really glad it came out when it did. And yeah, I, that's kind of my take on that situation. I, I like what you're saying there uh, and I won't get ahead of myself, uh, but you know, just the, it's not that film original films can't be made, but it, it, we, you know, seeing one of this scale, cause, cause blockbusters especially have at least for the last, I'd say 20 ish years lean so heavily on trying to, trying to make surefire hits so they base it off of properties they already know there's a lot of lot of formula blockbuster-esque formulas based off of what they know works and not as much innovation um and uh, you know Christopher Nolan doing this film was did not play into any of those formulas at least as far as I can tell and original cast original script you know maybe the biggest I would say positive of The Dark Knight is that it, it gave Christopher Nolan the clout to Yes. make a case for his mm-hmm. original films because because again mm-hmm. batman begins did all right and it was i think it was critically well received i i liked it a lot but i don't think it had one the like love and dedication of a fan base in the same way that dark knight did and it certainly didn't have you know the the box office gross dark knight i think i need to run the numbers but i know that by the time it was all said and done it, it did break a billion dollars which which again especially wow you know in the 2008 <laughs> uh 2008 2009 was was not as common as it is today um so no, I think uh, again, Alex. I, I, I'm glad that you kind of paint that picture there because it really he really doesn't he plays by his own book. He doesn't he doesn't necessarily adhere to a lot of the more tropey or blockbustery type um, formulas that I think that we're used to seeing in the theater. Uh, but Laurent Chapman, I, I want to get your take here. What was your initial reaction to Inception? Throughout the process, I mean, it was mind boggling. But I feel like when I left the theater, I felt like my head was spinning because. And I immediately had to have a conversation about it. It's the kind of movie that I I went to see in theaters multiple times with different audiences, because just to see their reactions to certain moments, because it was very much an event movie, you know, after you've seen it, that there's, there's so many individual set pieces that are just so breathtaking. Um, But I think my takeaway from it was what I was most like, just so blown away by was just the construction of the story, you know, just how, how intricate and involving it was and how um, engrossing it was as it went along. So um, it's as much, a, you know, a masterful piece of storytelling as it is a visual spectacle. And so it, it, it really does kind of um, it's the, it's the perfect um, hybrid of having like an indie spirit with like commercial appeal, you know, and I feel like that, that also characterizes most of, of Nolan's films. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's a really great way to put it. Indie spirit, uh, commercial appeal. He finds a. It's crazy how he's able to find a way to work such big ideas, and and some of them I would even say are are challenging ideas, but into a blockbuster spectacle. And I, I do think the Dark Knight was. 
that was, I mean, again, I think he had done that in, you know, Batman Begins to some degree, but the way he was able to work like a lot of those loftier, darker things into the Dark Knight in a way that um, mainstream audiences liked and, and connected with um, really set him up to, to take it further with, you know, ideas that were more personal to him. Just indulge me for one second. I'm going to gush on this movie and I promise I'll get back to the all the I'll how dare you. I just am going to well, it's to lay my cards out there. So I, I started writing film criticism as a hobby and I was not good at it at the time in 2011 inception, you know, and you're everyone's film going life. They probably have films that impact them a certain way. This was the film where I actually thought I was losing touch with my own reality because of how much I couldn't stop thinking about it. I walked out of the movie and I was with some friends. It was the last time, last summer I was living uh, in my, I lived with my parents. I moved back in. It was after my freshman year of college. And uh, small town Indiana, there's not a whole lot to do there, not going to lie, except for we did have a movie theater. So that was like the one outlet I had all summer. But Inception was the one, uh, me and my buddies, we came out. We, I think we saw, I want to say it was like the 7 or 8 p.m. type showing. So we walk out of the parking lot around like 10 o'clock or, or sorry, like probably like around 11 o'clock or something. We're sitting there out there in the parking lot talking till 3 a.m. in the morning. So um, mm. and and then I went to sleep just like laying in bed, still trying to like piece it all together in my brain, like uh, just, you know, digesting the movie in a way that I don't feel like I'd done. Done as much in the past. I, I don't want to say there are never there weren't movies that I had to think about like that, but I I remember like talking about it for hours, going back home, thinking about it when I went to sleep. Woke woke up the next morning and was still just like eating breakfast, trying to like chew on it. And of course, at the time I was living at home, so I had a ton of time on my hands. So, um, and but uh, to Laurent's point, the other piece though was I was able to see this film with multiple audiences. So I I think I saw this film four times in theaters, and I saw it with different groups each time, uh, and I saw it in like three different theaters. So it was definitely a different experience every time I went. And the conversations that I would have with with the people I was with afterwards were very different each time. And what was really great about it, and I think, and we're going to get into this more, and in, you know, in the, uh, in the discussion here is that this movie really he leaves it just ambiguous enough in so many different areas that everyone can kind of have their own take. But he's not definitive enough to where I'm like, well, you're just wrong. You know what I mean? Like you could say it, and as long as you can make a case for it, I'd be like, that's a that's an interesting theory, and we might talk about some of those later. But um, I I found it to be like a good kind of gateway into film criticism because it, it was more like I was obsessed with trying to figure this movie out, which led me personally to say, well, I want to do that with other movies too. And you know, not not every movie is going to have some big complex uh, plot construction so the things you know that there more became more of a draw were themes and so you know this really was a formative film for me personally and I know that Christopher Nolan obviously is a huge impact on a lot of people so checking a box that I think is probably pretty common among uh, a lot of white males out there but um yeah I, this is a, a movie I fell in love with I and I but I will say I haven't actually watched it in several years a couple things that, that we didn't note that I wanted to hit on that just stuck out to me is also out kind of breaking the mold a little bit uh, you mentioned, Alex, uh, Marvel movies. Uh, so, yeah, Iron Man was 2008, like as you mentioned. Um, and this is uh, a couple years after that. But, like, already there was a big push uh, in the industry to go towards the the CGI VFX, uh, like, full-blown. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't that far. This is only five years removed from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, which was an almost entirely green screen movie. And there was definitely oh, a, yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said that because that was how I, I at the time that was uh, James Cameron's Avatar was 2009. So there was definitely a push in the industry at the time to get everything CG. I do think we've swung back a little closer to the middle. I still think CG is overwhelmingly the way things are done. But Christopher Nolan has been that advocate who's saying, no, I am going to film as much within the lens 
I'm going to capture as much with, within the lens as I can. And anything I can't do, I'm going to find, we'll, we'll work it into post-production somehow, um, which again, just requires more meticulous planning and, and creativity on his end. And I think that's actually still true today when you rewatch the film. I mean, there's a couple of CGI sequences that I think are a little little dated not like chunky yeah yeah <laughs> uh, yeah but i mean overall like the, the big moments of the movie did not rely on cgi uh, and i think about like um the the scene with jgl or joseph gordon levitt running down the hallway uh twisting that was all done practically they like mounted a lens to one floor and they spun the room around it, it was yeah it's crazy and now, by the way i think i believe joseph gordon levitt also did his own stunts on that but it was i remember when i saw that the first time i literally said holy shit like out loud in a theater full of people <laughs> like because it was just you know it didn't feel like i'd seen it before so um did just want to give a shout out to the to the vfx and um lastly uh, and I do think we are going to talk a lot, about, a lot more about this in a little bit when we talk about the influence of Inception on pop culture. Uh, the soundtrack also. Um, of course, we have uh, Hans Zimmer had partnered with Christopher Nolan on Batman Begins and Dark Knight. And again, I think that what is interesting to me is that like this is still kind of the same recipe kind of that same electronic style that Hans Zimmer was really, you know, making the way to go at the time. Um, I think he did it here, and this is the film I think even more so than the Dark Knight Batman movies is the one that's kind of stuck and influenced maybe the way that at least during the first half of the 2010s, we we heard a lot of really bassy soundtracks and scores and films. Yeah, the score, that's it still kills me. I wrote this in like that year in review, the movies of the decade thing for the Cinematropolis and the 2010 best no, 2011, the next year, whenever the Academy Awards was for it. Uh, they This score did not win the Academy Award, but it's one of those, like, in hindsight, like, in terms of the long-term impact on the industry, that should have been, like, obviously the standout uh, for uh, for the contributions, the score, for better or worse, on <laughs> the movie industry. Uh, definitely in action thrillers for basically the next foreseeable decade. Oh, don't worry. We're going to get to talking some sh uh, trash on the Academy later. Cause just remember that the King's speech is the one that won best picture that year. So just keep that in mind that cultural, oh, cultural impact. And I'm not saying no, no shade on that movie. I'm just saying when you look at cultural impact, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People aren't thinking about the King's speech in 2022 much. No. Okay. For this look back, of course, we all watched the film again. And I do want to spend probably the bulk of our time today discussing the themes and ideas that, that seem to stick out today before we really determine whether or not Inception still holds up 10 years later. I'm actually going to start with you on this one, Leron. What was your general reaction upon this rewatch? Did you uh, I'd say about the same. Um, I think, obviously, as you mentioned before, like some of the visual effects are a, a a scotch dated, but the major set pieces, because a lot of it's been done practically, as you said, um, really holds up well. I think, as you mentioned, the themes in the story still resonate. The performances are all, you know, like again, you have an A-list cast here. There's not a, there's not really a wasted performance or you know what have you. I think that upon rewatching it, what I loved most about it is that you know the first time you watch it, the first or maybe even the first two times you watch it. Um, it's it's again it's very complex so there's a lot to chew on there's a lot to kind of dissect but now because i understand it and understand where it's going i'm really able to just kind of sit back and bask in how how well made it is you know again just the construction of it in general um without being confused and, and trying to pick up a little breadcrumbs of what it all means and what have you so um so i was able really this time to really just kind of enjoy the mechanics of it and if not just you know uh trying to piece together what's happening moment to moment 
right? Ha- having hindsight, having knowing, okay, we know generally where this story is going. We know what it's about. So now you can kind of focus on that. Okay, how did how did he actually execute on these big ideas? Like, you know, like what what worked right. well about it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joe, how about you? How how was this? How did this rewatch treat you this time? I think yeah, like Laron, it was it was about at the same level. I think what is interesting, at least for me, and this rewatch is just kind of thinking about it in terms of where I am now also. So like watching it 10 years ago, I was pretty young and like didn't have any professional experience as like a writer or anything. So, and now I'm like, I'm coming off of almost five years of like reading scripts professionally. So for me, it's watching it through the lens of, of the writing and like thinking about how it's structured and, and what a feed it is. I think Laurent mentioned that earlier, just structurally and, I know that we will probably talk about the exposition, but like how exposition is handled in this film fairly well, I would say. So I think the rewatch for me was a little bit more engaged with the the material and the level of storytelling. So for me, it was really interesting to watch again and think how a writer would plot it out and what what a challenge it would be. So yeah, I think that was what was different for me and I still enjoyed it. So yeah. So it holds up. So good, good. It wasn't just a hand wavy uh, magic. It actually was good quality writing. Sounds like from your perspective. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I think so. I think just I mean there are always ways that things could be better. I think characters probably could use a little bit of work in this, but but overall, I think just and I was with I was I was kind of the same with Dunkirk as well. Just thinking like, how do you even plot this out? How do you make sure that you're you're balancing everything all this i think he's balancing like five concurrent storylines in this film so it's it's pretty crazy uh from a writing perspective and the fact that he does it with such a a a delicate touch i don't think anything is I, i don't think anything is like too heavy or or yeah i think everything is just really balanced well in this film considering how much there is and having to do it all in just a little over two hours. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a lot crammed in the two hours, and uh, no, I mean just like um, one thing that I noticed this time around in particular was the uh, the way, and they even make a joke about it in the movie. Um, uh, so just the way they, they they work so hard to set up all these rules in the first half of the movie. Um, oh, well, it's twofold, but they like the, the the basic fundamentals of like the rules they set up in the first half of the movie, just so they can basically break most of them in the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, but like break it in a way that it doesn't like disregard what they've already told you, but they're saying, ah, oh, well you learn how to, you learn the rules so you can know how you can break them. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Of course, uh, J- uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt at one point tells Owen Page in the movie, he's like, oh, so you, you notice that, uh, Cobb spends a lot of time, uh, doing the things he says not to do. Um, which mm-hmm. I, I, I think I thought was kind of a nice, a little bit of self-referential, uh, sense of humor there. Um, but no, I, I think, yeah, the, the, the. The scripting in this and, and that the, the exposition and the way that even though you're like, I, gosh, two, there's still some stuff they're rolling out two thirds away through the movie that they're like either reminding you or or reframing something they've already said in a way that you have a better understanding of what does this actually mean? What's the intent of the, the writers and the character? Um, so, yeah, it's normally you would say this is super exposition heavy, but the way he's able to pace it all out and, and plot it out, um, just it really it worked for me this time as well. Uh, Alex, how about you? Uh, what, you know, what was your reaction on this rewatch? So I think I liked it just maybe a skosh better, like just maybe a hair better than I did in theaters. I think it's, you get so tied up 
like you were saying, like you watch it four times in theaters because you were still trying to figure it out, puzzle it out, like untangle your thoughts about it. And like Lauren was saying and what Joe was saying, it's like now you get to just enjoy and let it be, let it carry you through the film. So the fact that I'm like, okay, I'm not trying to like untangle what I think is going on and apply it to the screen and then be wrong, you know, that Mm -hmm. actually kind of helped me as a viewer, enjoy it more. Um, What I also found interesting, we talked a second, um, someone mentioned stuff about character. Um, Oh, Joe said that the characters did need some work. And that's kind of one thing that after I stepped back from the spectacle, which is used to great advantage in this film. um, And I stepped back from my, like how I, perceive things to be going on and sitting with the characters um realizing that our protagonist is basically the only one that is fleshed out and he is not a very good person (laughs) Um, i he's he's kind of a terrible person um and in the in the midst of the plotting and how dream within a dream within a dream you get I know at the very end, and I don't know if we're worrying about spoilers for a film that we're celebrating as its 10th anniversary release uh, at uh, this point. Spoil it. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> Why are you well, listening to this episode the- if you haven't, if you haven't watched the movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, please. Why, what are you doing here? Um, so <laughs> when we get to the end and we got Cillian Murphy's character in the, the vault in the ice palace that looked like a rip from like, I don't know like a James Bond movie, ice palace kind of fortress thing. And he pulls out the pinwheel. Like I cried, obviously, but then you remember, Oh wait, this is just this. This is all fabrications of Cillian Murphy's own mind because some competitor wanted to dissolve, uh, like for capitalist gain, wanted to dissolve, uh, like competitors, uh, empire. And like, that was one thing I was like, damn, this movie has great feels, but at the same time you feel bad for like rooting for these people considering they happened to find the one son of a CEO that was the new CEO that had daddy issues that really wanted to like go out and set something out for his own. Um, But what if they didn't, what if he wasn't the mark, you know, what if they just destroyed this one guy's life because that was going to be the case um, so happens um, he actually wanted to do something else with his life. So um, I've been kind of wrestling a lot more with uh, kind of characters, the morality of the characters and character motivations um, on this rewatch. It, it's nice to be able to like examine those instead of being like, oh my God, is the top going to wobble or not? You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's where the conversation ends, which yeah. is a lot of the discourse in the past 10 years has been, what reality are we now in, which now feels almost irrelevant. Right. It's, it's still relevant, but not as pressing for me to, to have an opinion on. And this is one of the, the trappings of a heist movie, right? You got to think that Ocean's Eleven, those guys are all, I mean, sure, they're stealing from a bad guy, but they're also stealing from a bad guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not like it, you kind of, the, the, and again, I think part of like the, the heist trope is, you write a protagonist that you can relate to. And in this case, they utilize the kind of the, the, the guilt of the wife to kind of be like a, 
uh, the dead wife to be a, a way for the audience to connect with him. But yeah, I mean, when you actually, let's not forget, you meet Cobb when he's actually trying to steal information from Saito's mind. You know, like it's not like he's he's uh, yeah. not, not a great guy. Um, and neither are any of these people for that matter. And I also think, too, mentioning, you know, Fisher or Cillian Murphy, his his character, that's, uh, I think you, you hit the, the nail on the head there, Alex, because it kind of really plays into what Laron and Joe mentioned that I also noticed this time just about the execution. That particular subplot was, which is, I don't know, the heist, the, the, like the, the, the Fisher's journey I found to be particularly interesting because really, like, the photo that he placed with the little pinwheel he put there and then they use that like that. It's uh, I think that might be like the one happy memory he had with his dad, maybe that he put there. And his you never know if his dad actually valued that or not. So it's all just like them trying to help, like like feeding this guy his own narrative that he wants to hear, you know. And it's and, right. but but they're the ones controlling like the like the lens in which he views that moment, you know. I hear what you guys are saying about the character, and we're going to talk about that more uh, in the kind of when we're looking at the themes. But I do want to just go ahead and plant the seed now and throw out there like maybe it's very intentional that everyone, all the characters outside of Cobb are written to be pretty ambiguous or without clear motive, um, especially if you're viewing the lens through, oh, this all is a dream. So they're all just projections of Cobb's anyway. Um, so, I, you know, but that's one of those things, though. You have to you have to ask yourself the question, was this intentional? Was it an accident? Did no one intentionally leave it that way? And if he did, then that's a really great form. Uh, if you're trying to make that kind of have that question on the audience when they leave the theater, or maybe maybe he just didn't write the characters very well, you know. So it's it's kind of it, again that's the thing that's interesting about this movie is there's so many things that are left ambiguous that you can't tell if it's intentional or not. So you yeah. can, it's kind of like it's left up to your your just you your audience response to the movie to decide whether or not you thought it was a flaw or a, a bug or a feature, you know. Bugger feature. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We've already talked about like the, the the nature of Christopher Nolan's scripts. Let's jump into what I would consider like the really first big element here that I want to want to break down, which is the non-linear, non-traditional plot structures. So Christopher Nolan, even by the time of Inception, was already known for these. He did Memento, you know, most famously he did Memento, which is a movie that starts has two storylines that are converging one at the end, like chronologically at the end of the story and one at the beginning and they're working towards the middle of the film. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then you have, uh, you have Batman begins, which is honestly pretty straightforward, but it's got flashbacks as a pretty uh, notable piece of that story. Uh, and then you also have the prestige, which is like, there's like, I think I have to go back and rewatch the film, but there's a point where you're like two narrators deep into a story. Again, he has always been fascinated with the the nonlinear plot structures. And of course, Dunkirk, a film that would come out, uh, you know, seven years later, also utilized a very, very um, experimental plot structure that uh, I think is up to debate for debate how much any of these plot structures work. But I do think it's especially notable when you're looking back at the, you know, Christopher Nolan's um, body of work. So uh, we'll uh, start with you on this one, Joe. Like, what do you make of Christopher Nolan's sort of obsession or interest in nonlinear editing? And how do you think that plays a role in the story of Inception? Well, I think it kind of just plays into what you already mentioned. Is it is his intentionality with making the audience feel as if they're experiencing the dreams that the characters are experiencing. I think it's, I think it's incredibly intentional here, especially with the very beginning and the very end. So at the very beginning starts in the middle of Cobb already being in limbo, trying to get Sato out. 
after who knows how much time has passed. And the very end, you have him kind of coming out of that moment in the middle of their plane ride. So that kind of contributes to the theory that this is all a dream and like we don't know what's happening and we don't know how we even got here. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know why he's I, I, I can't speak to why he's so obsessed with playing with these things, but I think that I think that for the most part, he does it really well and in, in really interesting ways and manages to. I don't know, it just engages the audience on a different level and makes you be more present, I think in what he's trying, the stories that he's trying to tell, which is always, I, I appreciate a film that either makes you question what's going on or, I mean, like I was a big Lost fan. So like, I, I love, <laughs> I love when a, when a project is like, is this happening? Is it really happening? What's going on? Like, I, I love audience engagement and just feeling challenged by something. So I, I definitely appreciate what he does in a lot of his movies. Lost fans unite. Also, uh, that show <laughs> ended. That that show ended like two months before Inception came out. So, fun fact: mm. 2010. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, just celebrated a 10 year anniversary of sorts. Uh, <laughs> oh, Laron, tell me, uh, give me your perspective here. Um, and I, I know you've done your share of screenwriting as well. I think everyone on the on the podcast today has done some form of screenwriting. Like, but what like what do you make of like, what sticks out to you about his use of plot structure and nonlinear plot structures? I'm 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 really in awe of the way he constructs his stories. I wish, and maybe one day I will. I won't say never, but um, I'm I'm so um, pragmatic and so like structured that I have to like, you know, I, I can only see things in linear form when I'm writing. I can appreciate them, you know, other people's, you know, interpretations of storytelling. Um, I myself have just never delved into it that way. But what I think here with Nolan. You know, it is very deliberate, um, and he creates disorientation, and that seems really kind of, um, you know, integral to the storytelling itself. Because you're in this dream landscape, you know, everything shouldn't be so clean cut, you clear and dry. You know, like it should, you should be disoriented. You know, because it kind of plays into, you know, just thematically how things are working. But I think what what comes out of it though here is that um, he's forcing the audience to pay attention. You know, because when you're disoriented, you're immediately, you know what I mean, provoked in a way where you now have to now pay attention to try and make sense of what isn't making sense for you. You know, so it, it, it kind of it's it's a cool, like deliberate tool to make people tune in because you can't sit and casually watch a Christopher Nolan film and be like, oh, OK, I'll just pick up where I left off. You know, like you're going to be lost. You know, you're required to watch, you know, it's active viewership. So. And uh, Alex, what, what do you think? Uh, for I think the nonlinear storytelling here, I mean, it. it's one of those things where if it's, I support it whenever it feels like it's supporting the text of the film. Um, whenever it's just added in because someone wanted to be like, yeah, let's, let's try it out. But it, it doesn't actually like aid in like the kind of, tone and themes of the film that's whenever I start questioning okay why is this kind of included this way but uh, it's very clear uh, from the get-go that this is this supports Nolan's uh vision for for most of the films especially the original um the original kind of concept films that he's made um non-linear storytelling supports the tones and themes of those films I think if you're comparing 
like two of his his oeuvre like inception with interstellar i think inception kind of pulls it off a little bit better i i don't know if i i don't know why that might just be a personal opinion of mine um but i think it kind of supports what he's doing just a, a, a little bit better um but yeah i think it just it it's a it supports the the text and it does challenge the viewer like everyone has kind of noted and and it makes you not be able to watch in a kind of casual fashion and and it, then it allows you as a viewer to kind of be like okay you cut your teeth on Nolan now i can go after some more um some harder and more engaging text that really demands something of me as the audience um because this is just kind of the the be- the best way to kind of tiptoe into um kind of more challenging texts um from film and from just traditional literature yeah absolutely and i i I really i like that comparison to um you know maybe more traditional literature because i don't think he's the first person to construct a uh you know a highly complex um plot structure like this i always think of like slaughterhouse five as being like one that uh it does a really good job with not, not, I wouldn't say as complex as Inception, but you know, uh, thinking about like uh, stories that utilize time. And because I do think, I actually do think, um, the one thing I just want to point out too is that I think the the editing and the, the plot structure is designed in a way to either mask or mask or have something to say about the passage of time in a way that is done when done linearly, it doesn't quite have the same impact. So I think about like uh, the dark Knight or even the dark Knight rises. So his two other Batman films, they really don't utilize flashbacks. Uh, There are, there are some in dark Knight rises, I should say, but generally those are both very straightforward stories. Uh, Same with uh, um, insomnia. So like in in that those movies feel a lot more present like they're happening in a very condensed amount of time. Uh and I think with Inception, uh the use of the nonlinear storytelling is a way to kind of disorient the audience but also force them to pay attention like you guys have already said, but I think it's also there to kind of create that dream vibe. Like you don't know how long thing like I, I when I was rewatching this, I was watching with my girlfriend and and she was like, "Wait, how long did this how long did this whole thing happen? Like we see Michael Caine over in Europe and then we see him in America at the end of the film. Like how much time passed? How long were they playing this heist? We don't really know. We just, it's, it's nebulous. And the way they edit it, it could be a week or it could be a month or it could be a year. And I think much like dreams and, and the, the experience we have in dreams where time is kind of disorienting and, and you kind of hop around a lot. Um, I think I think we see that here um, in Inception as well. Uh, so I again, I think uh, you, you look at how he utilizes it the time factor is the one that always sticks out, especially if you're looking at Dunkirk and yeah. And uh, yeah, interstellar to a certain extent, I would say inception and inception. The only movie I think that structurally might work better than inception maybe is memento, but I, I don't think interstellar or Dunkirk quite as clean as we get with, with inception, but um, still done overall pretty well. Uh, now we've, we've already mentioned the exposition piece here, uh, but I, Alex, I wanted to get your take on this. Like, did you feel like the exposition, the way they delivered the exposition worked well for you? For Inception, I honestly, I mean, look, he's building a mostly like a highly original world. There's going to be some fucking sitting down at a cafe and spoon feeding you what the fuck is going on. Sorry, <laughs> I realize it's just, but it's just like, that's the real thing. And so it's like one of those things for a film, the runtime it has 
and like the complexity that it has, I'm more willing to be like, okay, everyone needs to be like on the same page at what potentially is going on here. So I, I don't really mind having kind of spoon feeding exposition at times, but there is plenty of moments where of really pure like audience disorientation that I don't, it kind of does balance out that approach for me. So it, I think, I think it does as best it can with, with that, but. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good points. Uh, Laurent, what what do you you think? uh, Exposition highly effective, uh, too much, not enough. What do you think? Um, I appreciated it. I I'm generally opposed to exposition in films. If it doesn't, if, if what you're getting ready to say is getting ready to be shown, you know, Mm -hmm. like, that, but I don't feel like I feel like the setup initially here. It, it's so there's so many intricate layers to it. You really need something to grasp on. Otherwise, it's just going to be frustrating and not enjoyable. You know, so I feel like even though there's a lot of exposition, there's still a lot that contradicts what happens and what you know. What I mean, so it's just kind of it's balanced, as as, as Alex said. You know, it, there's there's a balance of of explanation and then you know, um, deception, you know, so, um, so it goes back and forth with it. I wasn't bothered by it. I, I appreciated it when I was watching it because by the time we finally get that, that, you know, that cafe conversation, I was like, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. You know, like maybe in another film, I'd be less forgiving of it, you know? Um, but I think with this particular genre and particularly a story this intricate with this many layers it 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 works it's it's almost necessary you know so well and i think one thing you guys mentioned the cafe it really makes me think about how he tells you and then immediately shows you and i know that like obviously show don't tell but like it's like he just explained this really complex thing and you're not really sure what he means totally oh wait here's what he means like you know here's what he's he's talking about right after he just told you he's showing you exactly what he means so it kind of removes enough of the ambiguity that you can kind of generally follow along with the the concepts that they're rolling with. Uh, Joe, exposition, what's your take on that? Yeah, I I agree with everybody else. For me, the exposition at the very first was more of a bump because they're in the middle of this big action sequence kind of calling each other, you know, you're the designer, you're the architect, you should have done this or that. Like that is a little bit more natural to me. I think for me, the cafe sequence and and uh, the whole thing with Ariadne was a little bit less of, uh, it was not as on the nose to me because she's a fish out of water. She's coming out from the outside. She's coming into this team. So it, it makes sense narratively for him to be explaining. She's acting as an audience stand-in. So they're, they're not explaining everything to her. They're explaining everything to us. And that's just a technique that you can like sneak into stories to make that kind of thing work. And also, this is just a heist film. So heist films are always going to have them, you know, walking the audience through every step of what they're going to be doing. And then those twists and turns that follow and the contradictions. So, yeah, I mean, and the idea feels fully fleshed out to me. And I would rather have more than less in this situation with how complex the world is and how much is going on. So I don't really mind the exposition as much. And I think like Laurent, I might not I might not give other movies as much of a pass if everything else weren't working so well. The next big theme I really want to hit on is uh, what is reality? So let's all step back into a time machine and go back 
to the late 90s. It was a simpler time. In the late 90s, I actually find the late 90s to be an especially interesting time in pop culture, like the like because it's the, we hadn't hit 9-11 yet. So the things we were thinking about were a lot different than the things we were thinking about after 9-11. A couple of movies that Christopher Nolan said inspired him uh, for Inception include Dark City uh, and The Matrix, and even said like he wanted to do more with kind of some of the ideas he experimented with in Memento. Uh, which you can, I think you can if you've seen Memento, you can definitely see a lot of those ideas at work in Inception as well. Awake. Where am I? Some anonymous motel room. I guess I've already told you about my condition. Oh, well, only every time I see you. It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. I have no short-term memory. I know who I am. I know all about myself. I just, since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. I've told you this before, haven't I? What's the last thing that you do remember? My wife. Dying. Do you think that Inception adds a really original spin on the recurring sci-fi theme of what is reality? You know, almost it's a classic theme. Almost goes like back to the whole Plato's allegory of the cave sort of thing, you know. So what is reality? Do you think, you know, when thinking about The Matrix and thinking about Dark City, is this a film that you think is up there with that level of impact, influence, and just overall quality? Uh, Joe, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, Yeah, I think culturally. I mean, I haven't unfortunately seen Dark City, but I loved the matrix when it came out so i i i'm i'm predisposed to like these kinds of stories i think um i think it's definitely a a unique take on on the question of what's reality i think again from a writing standpoint it's really interesting to kind of to peel back everything they had to do here thinking about well your characters are experiencing dreams well how does that have any stakes what's the balance you have to strike between what is the real world and what's dreams? Um, there's the tension, you know, of are you just trapped in your mind this whole time? Uh, so I think he did a lot of really smart things to make sure that, you know, like the bad dreams are still scary. The pain that you experience there is real. You run the risk in this film of falling so deep into yourself that you can't get out and you just, your mind turns to mush. So I think that I think that he did a lot of really interesting things, even like the subconscious being like an enemy within the dreams. He just did a lot of things that were really smart in the writing to make this feel interesting, scary, tense, and like it has any stakes. Because I think it, in a clumsier film, you could start with the idea of, oh, you're able to go into other people's dreams, but then it would kind of stop there, if that makes sense. Mm. Nobody would like a, a less experienced writer would just, and somebody who hadn't spent as long as he did on this film. I think he spent like almost a decade working on the idea. It, like you just, you wouldn't have a story if you didn't have all these other kind of tense elements that he added into the idea. So yeah, I think it's definitely a, a unique and interesting take. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Alex, what, what, what do you think? What do you make? Uh, is this uh, in the echelon of uh, dark city or the matrix or maybe even the, any of those other, like what is reality movies? Yeah, I also second Joe. I haven't seen Dark City, so I can't speak to that. Obviously, The Matrix is as important as it is for a reason. Um, and I think it this does kind of round out a different perspective of, of how one can question reality through the medium of film. Um, because 
definitely like the matrix has its own themes and tone and commentary upon um, you know, who's really in charge, all this kind of stuff. Inception kind of dodges all of those like bigger questions of like societal structures and things like that. And we're focusing in on this, this core concept of the malleability of people's uh, conscious consciousness um and then our central kind of hub character of if of Cobb I mean obviously you can't uh talk about a film questioning with reality without mentioning Paprika which is uh Satoshi Kon's 2006 uh animated uh feature which I know has there are calls to that film with uh in the visual language of Inception at times um, but those, but, but even though, like, I think I've seen Paprika like a couple years ago and then Inception, obviously like three days ago. And it's like, so it's hard to even say, well, and Paprika does it better. Inception does it better because they feel still different enough that they, they kind of round out the concept of using film in this way to get at this core concept of talking about how people perceive different things and, and experience their, their various realities. So I, I think Nolan just, he, he's really good at what he does guys. It's going to be real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Laurent, I need you to help me out here. I need you to help me out and tell me that you've seen dark city. <laughs> Have you seen dark city, Laurent? Did I, or did I, did I indulge myself too much by throwing this in here? I've seen dark city, but it has been, <laughs> it's been probably more than 10 years ago. So um, it, I don't have a clear, a clear concept of it enough to, to dissect it deeply, but I, I mean, but just on the concept of, of, you know, again, reality and, um, and, and dream, this dream state, like, I feel like it is a great example, like of all of those. And in its own way, it is, it's very modernistic, you know, in that sense, you know, instead of having this kind of Gothic nostalgic appeal, because um, those films are considerably darker, uh, both, I mean, aesthetically and thematically. You know, I think um, there's something a little bit more clean and slick about Inception uh, by comparison. Um, but what I find very interesting about it is that it's, you know, in, in oddly, the film that kind of came to mind, and maybe because I watched it recently, um, whenever I was watching it, was uh, the animated film um, Inside Out. Um, because thinking of how we process trauma or our different emotions and how those things affect us, you know, like in, in using that same kind of landscape here, it's, it's, it, that's dealing more with reality and, and lived experiences. But in many ways, that's kind of what Dom's character was doing. You know, the, there were projections of those things in a dream state, you know, so, um, but all happening simultaneously. Um, but I found I found it to be a, a great example of uh, of the kind of themes that the Matrix and the Dark City kind of brought about. Lauren, I hadn't even thought about Inside Out. That is a great pull because I honestly, in a lot of ways, feel like this has more in common. Inception has more in common with Inside Out than it does uh, Dark City, the Matrix. And the thing that sticks out mm. to me about those two movies is those are uh, those movies are tackling very big themes. The themes of like liberation, of seeing through the lie of um, finding out this horrible truth that, that, that your everything you've known is is not real um, and trying to kind of uh, become woke to that to the the lie uh, or to um, liberate yourself from um, the world that you've been living in um, 
so that you can really kind of address the real injustices that are happening on, in the larger scale. Versus uh, Inception, um, like Inside Out, is much, much more personal. Uh, this is a very, again, we've already talked about Cobb as the central figure. He's really the only one that's fleshed out. And the story, pretty much we only get information we need to know that's relevant to his story. I mean, yes, there is some kind of world building, just given the the, the huge big premise and big scope of the story that, that no one's working with, but, the, but they really don't go out of their way to explain like all the ins and outs of the, of the dream science at all. They just give you just enough information to know exactly what you need to know to understand uh, the, the story and Cobb's journey through the story in a similar way that I think Inside Out is also a highly personal um highly personalized story to that particular character. I would say, you know, there's a lot more of the pink elephant sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, Inside Out, of course, uh, rest in peace, uh, Bing Bong. But, you know, uh, it's there's a lot more of that kind of like fun, goofy, dreamy stuff in, in that film, uh, which actually really takes me to our next question here. And then we'll move on to the next theme I want to discuss. But uh, Christopher Nolan's vision for dream reality. Uh, so both Inside Out uh, that LeBron mentioned, and I think uh, Alexandra, you 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 jump, you 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 said it first. Paprika films that I think are both really interested in delving into the projections of the self uh, the subconscious, and both of them are significantly more colorful. Where this feels a lot more again slick is a really good way to put it. I don't want to say calculated, but I, you know. The architecture is a big thing in this movie, and I can tell that the person who who designed dream reality in this world is not a. This is again not a a criticism, but just an observation about how no one visualizes dreams and what a dream reality would look like. It's all clean. Um, there's still like these very clear rules, and yeah, that like the most outrageous thing we see happen is the train driving through you know the middle of downtown L.A. Versus you know in Paprika, we see giant parades of colorful creatures we don't recognize for no reason things happen for no reason uh same with uh with inside out there are like these inexplicable moments that i think are, are common and drunk so i wanted to uh, I'm, I'm kind of showing my hand a little bit here i don't necessarily know if i have a preference over one version of dream reality or another but i do think that the cool thing about dreams is that you can do all sorts of crazy insane stuff um and not have to explain it you just, just right away as it's just a dream that christopher nolan does not indulge in at all um so uh LeRon, what, what, did, what did you make of the dream reality were you a fan uh yay nay or indifferent like what did you think i mean given the way that the story is told i think his vision of it makes sense um it it, it might have been interesting to see maybe some darker more or slightly um uh surrealistic imagery in it you know um because everything here again is very slick you know um but what i think he gets incredibly right about um, the dream landscape is really just kind of the, um, again, the mood and the tone and the dread. And um, again, it is even, even with the main character being not a particularly great person, um, the things that have happened to him, we can identify with or have empathy for. Um, so it, it, it's a, it's a mixed emotions of things, you know, um, things that are both personal again and, um, and also again disorienting. So I I I liked his vision of it. Um, it it was it was it was Christopher Nolan's dream, you know. So um, and I think that was valid. All right, very cool. Uh, Alex, what do you what do you think? So I have um, I like it, but I find I have this like so th I just have this really interesting idea, and I just want to explore it for like a second. If I find that there is a a very clear like 
visual text difference between the kind of dream realities, obviously, that we see Paprika, Inside Out, and what we see in Inception. What is a reason? What is a diff? Why would those languages be different besides just the directors having different visual appeals and blah, blah, blah? Well, I do think that there's something to be said about we are in the reason why we are in these dreams. Why are we in these dreams? The reason is motivated by capital. It's motivated by money. They, I mean, I know Cobb wants to get home, but the rest of the crew, whether they're figments of his imagination or or subconsciousness or not, um, they're aiding him. One would assume they're getting paid too. So all right. these people are on this kind of ride to help implant these images, visions, dreams in this one man's mind. Um, so there isn't as much room to, to, to include like the more fantastical elements of dreaming because there is just irrelevant to their mission. It's mission centric. There's no room to explore and play. Um, it's all about, we have a driving goal and vision and we have to get in and get it out and do it. So there's not a lot of room to build and explore. Now we do see Cobb go into his own subconscious, uh, with um, Mal and build these fantastical cities and which we see them crumbling. And I think that's where we actually get as close as Nolan gets to the fantastical reality um, is in that subconscious because they're there for joy, for exploration, for living together, for dreaming together. That's why they're there. Uh, but I do think the core motivations um, of these characters, why they have engaged in these fantastical realities um, are, are, are kind of different. And I think that also translates to the visual language used to convey uh, these varying dream realities. I have no preference. I think they work for each of their own, but I do think that the motivation behind their presence is maybe a difference visually. Yeah, yeah. that's a great note. Uh, Joe, any any uh, do you have any thoughts on dream reality in particular, for and how Christopher Nolan uh, visualizes them in the film? Uh, yeah, first, Alex, those were awesome points. I loved I loved those ideas. Um, Thanks. I'm gonna just I guess just be writing focused on my end today. But um, what I'll say is that I've read a lot of the bad scripts. <laughs> You'll have like a lot of scripts that start with a really good idea and there's like lots of room, like they build a toy box, but then they like don't put any toys in there. Mm. So <laughs> like you might have like a really fun world, like we're going to set this underwater, but then everything happening in that world is like the most, the most everyday that could be happening there. So <laughs> uh, I think that, that what I appreciate about Inception is that Nolan is so smart about playing in that world. So for me, like things that stuck out were like at the first dream, it's raining because somebody needed to go to the bathroom. That to me just like felt really smart and like echoing what's happening in the real world within the dream. So like the weightlessness as they're falling in another dream. I, I, I guess I just appreciated that more than anything, like that he was so smart about doing something in the story, but then making sure it's reflected in a, in a unique way within that dream. Yeah, and I think my favorite uh, kind of fun thing he does is when you know, uh, of, of course, you've got uh, you know Joseph Gordon-Levitt shoot you know shooting the he, he's going around shooting all the projections and then Tom Hardy and he just there's a couple of them he can't get it and Tom Hardy's like well you get you get a dream of a little bigger darling and then he pulls up the, mm. the grenade launcher uh, yeah that's a really good example uh, those are both really good examples I didn't even think about that the 
the rain because the guy had to go to the bathroom. That's a good. That's a good pull. Um, yeah, no, I, I overall I think it's a really strong dream reality. So I don't want to be uh, critical, but you know, it is one of those things where dreams are weird, and you you kind of wonder like, you know, what else? You know, if Christopher Nolan was to make uh, not an Inception two, but another movie with dreams, would he do it differently, or would he make a, a similar type of reality? Um, but I think you guys all raised great points, and and Alex, I think. Um, especially noting that like this is really about what what what's what sort of dream reality did the story and the characters demand um, I think is um, really uh, an important factor there I think it works pretty well overall um, and I'm just gonna make one more note I don't we, you know we've got to keep moving we're going long already but um, I just want to note that I think um, you know mentioning earlier there is this inherent question is Maul right is Cobb dreaming the whole time yeah, because if she's correct that means everything that happens in this movie is a dream and I do think that there is, I, I maybe this is a little ge too generous to Christopher Nolan, but I do think the lack of character work out of, outside of anyone other than Cobb, I think a lot of the editing decisions that really make the, the um, like when things happen, like how, like again, how long did it take them to put together this heist? Well, you've got like Tom Hardy's flying from Mumbai, they're flying to Europe where they, they're they convening and then he's going to go work under Brown, he's going to work under Browning for long enough to know like what his like mannerisms are and their history. Like how long was he working that job? You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of things that feel like they are very intentional and not just for like runtime, but just because you are also trying to keep the audience not at ease, like not sure about exactly what's going on. Cause if it is all a dream, all the hopping around feels like a video game and in a good way, in a good way, you know, like you're just hitting the plot beats where exactly where the next kind of checkpoint is. Um, and I, I don't think time is super relevant when you're in a dream reality. And that's what part of what makes the dream reality so enticing. But I also think that, uh, again, editing wise and all that, it was meant to throw us off. And so again, that's a, a generous, uh, maybe giving, um, Christian Owen a little bit of credit there. Uh, because if we did have fleshed out characters, if we did have more kind of connect the dots, how did this person get from A to B to C? Like how did, how did Saito get to Mumbai when, and sh conveniently show up right when, uh, Leo was running away from those guys, you know, lots of things like that, that just really make you feel like, I don't know exactly what I'm watching. And, um, I, I choose to believe that it was somewhat intentional. So, uh, anyway, kudos to that sort of like constructing that dream reality. So another thing, uh, let's, let's move on to our next topic. So Christopher Nolan, uh, though, uh, you know, I would say he's proven himself as a visionary in terms of filmmaking style and execution. There has been some criticism over the years that he has a quote unquote woman problem. Um, and I've read this and I only bring this up because I don't think I've never heard. There's not been like a moment in the last 10 years where all the feminist writers, feminist critics come out there at one time and say Christopher Nolan's the worst, um, especially in 2020. This is a thing that I feel like, you know, could happen at the moment's notice, especially if you guys heard about the chair incident from like two weeks ago or whatever. Um, but I, but I do think that, um, it is something I, every time one of his movies comes out, people write about it a little bit. No. And I think a lot of, I think generally, um, most of the criticisms I've read have been pretty generous towards Christopher Nolan, but I mean, his movies are generally very, very, very male centric, white male centric. Uh, he has a lot of dead wives in his movies. <laughs> if you go <laughs> look at his Uber, he's got a lot of dead wives guys. So, uh, I, so I want to get your take, and, and I'll, I'll start with you, Alex, Joe, and then Leron. Um, do you agree? Would you consider uh, you know, Christopher Nolan's maybe lack of a, a female perspective a weakness of the director, or do you think it's just circumstantial based on the stories he's telling? Uh, yep. This is, this is one that I've been chewing about a lot since watching 
uh, inception. Um, not necessarily, I hadn't really considered it within the looking at the length of his work, but yeah, it would be undeniable to notice and observe all the dead wives along the way. Um, and I don't, okay. I don't necessarily have a problem with exploring the same theme over and over and over again. I, I, I would hate to call it like sexist, but there is, there, there's something that he's trying to work out and this is his way of working it out. Um, I, I honestly, I have less of a problem with maybe this is me having a very limited view of it, but I have less of a problem with Mal and the littered dead wives and more of the, a problem with the only other female character in inception being just a vehicle to dump exposition. Like that's, that was more my, like, you know, of, of course the only other female character is the person that like doesn't know anything and has to, and, and is the person that is the emotional foil for Cobb. That's it's the woman that's unlocking his deep seated emotions because I guess all the guys are too busy shooting guns or doing what other <laughs> Chris Nolan thinks guys do in this movie. Um, so I guess that if, in, if Inception has a feminist ding from me, it's, it's more for that, not necessarily, ah, oh, you got to kill all the women and blah, blah, blah. But um, I'd be happy to hear other people's perspective on the subject matter as well. So, so Joe, what do you, like, what's your take? And, and maybe uh, I start with Inception and we can lead into maybe his larger career as well. Ooh, yeah, I mean, it's a big question. Um, I, I, I think for me, I don't have, I don't really have an issue with the female characters in this movie. More, what I have an issue with is that there are other characters that could have been not men. Um, there, I mean, like the chemist character could have easily been, you know, a, a woman or a non-binary character. Uh, there's, I mean, I like, for me, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tom Hardy because I know that they were kind of playing things up as like a semi-lover spat the whole time. So I, for me, I really like that energy, but I think other characters in the film, like Saito, even though I love Ken Watanabe, could have been a woman. Like, I think that he just doesn't, it's not always in his mind to think, well, that could be a woman. I think he just kind of falls back on well, I like this actor or I want to work with this actor again. So, and that's going to be probably in a lot of cases, a dude. So mm. um, that's more the issue for me. I think like, I understand that everybody in this film is kind of serving a stereotypical or a, a one dimensional purpose almost within his like larger body of work. Yeah, I think, again, it's just like he falls back on on the male perspective. I would love to see a movie with a female lead from him. Um, I know that he changed the... I don't know. Would you count Interstellar as like a female lead? Because I feel like it wasn't really her movie. Yeah. I know that they changed that character from a, a boy to a girl. But I, it's been a long time since I've seen that. So I can't really, I can't really speak to how much weight she carries that Murphy character carries. 
Oh, to me, I've seen it literally this year and it's, it definitely feels like a Matthew McConaughey is the, he is the driving force. I mean, she's very, she, uh, his daughter and Anna Hathaway's character are very central to the plot, but Mm -hmm. yeah, they, uh, yeah, it definitely feels like Matthew McConaughey's movie to me as a viewer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'm remembering too. So again, like there's no, there's not a bad thing about telling movies about guys. I just feel like, can we get some ladies in there maybe occasionally <laughs> um, is more my thing. Like just even like think about having more women, maybe don't fall back on being like, Oh, well here's a doctor or an astronaut or a police officer. And we're going to make them a man just because that's where your mind goes. So that's what I would like to see more. Probably. I, I really don't have like a problem with him as a filmmaker. I don't think I could probably think of some issues I have with him, but I, I, yeah, it's just a big question and and a problem within the industry overall. So if we want to talk about that, we can, but yeah, I think that's kind of where I stand. Yeah, no, I think that's um, all good perspective and um, Alex, I appreciate you uh, weighing in on uh, Interstellar because I'm pretty sure you're the person who's seen it on this most recently. So yeah, Definitely seemed like a McConaughey gig, as I recalled it. But, so, Laurent, uh, what, what do you have any anything you'd want to add to like the, just like looking at this through like a feminist lens and um, like any anything you'd like to add to what Joe and Alex have already talked about? So, more to uh, Joe's final point um, is kind of where I was. My mind was going with it until this question was presented to me. I hadn't really considered that, and that could be a product of male privilege, you know. Um, but in hearing it, you know, and then going back and kind of looking at his body of work and, um, and reading some kind of think pieces about his issues with women. Um, I, I do kind of think of it's of as, of it as a bigger industry problem Mm. and he's a byproduct of it. You know, like this is just in general, this is a problem with film, like mainstream movies in general. Um, I think, as it pertains to him, I think it's probably more circumstantial, but what I think, about that, that doesn't mean that it isn't a weakness, you know, so um, it might be circumstantial, but if these points have been brought to, you know, his attention in some capacity, I do think they're absolutely valid and worth, you know, considering moving forward with his projects. Um, And that's in that, in that, you know, could be retweeted to every filmmaker. I don't think as it pertains to him, he would be like, the first por- person I would single out as having a women's issue, like I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would look more closely at someone like Lars von Trier or some, you know, like people like that who just seem to just hate women. Like I don't. Michael Bay. Uh... <laughs> it's just hard to watch those movies because I have a lot of respect for women, and so when I see them seen in such degrading kind of ways, like it just feels uh, gross and um, and unnerving. Um, Here, I think with him. It's it's more of a blind spot than something he's doing again very egregiously. You know, like I don't I don't think he hates women. I think he's probably just a super macho male with all these big ideas and hadn't considered that maybe you know diversifying the genders in his in his films might actually be an asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he has a mostly white, mostly male stable of actors, and it I it honestly wouldn't be that hard. The, especially the these days where everyone is trying to uplift um, 
actors that aren't don't fit that mold for him to like diversify and broaden his scope of who gets cast in his movies. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I think to that point, the only thing I would add, and I guess the question you have to ask is, just as we close out this, this piece here um, is just, do you, do we think he's getting better? I don't, I, I can't say with any confidence that he's getting better um, with women, especially when you think, again, I think I'm, I'm with, I think the, the consensus of the group is that it's a blind spot, uh, a blind spot that hasn't been addressed because of a larger industry problem. Um, and I think that's a really fair way to put it. Cause I don't ever feel like women are treated disrespectfully in his movies. Truthfully. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, uh, yeah, sure. I guess JGL sneaks a kiss with Ellen page, but that's kind of meant to be a joke. So I, you know, I, 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 I'm interested to see what he does in the future. I, I know, you know, making Murph, uh, you know, played by Jessica Chastain was a big move. And he, uh, but I think in terms of diversifying, you know, we are seeing, I mean, he's got uh, a person of color in one of the lead roles of Tenet. Now, like, <laughs> you know, you can't put one person of color in a lead role and say we're good. But um, I do, you know, wonder or hope that that might be him trying to maybe address some of his weaknesses in the past because yeah, I mean, people of color and all really not, I mean, not a really a good strength of his in any of his films. Uh, so, yeah. um, I hope to see him, I hope to see him progress and I hope to see him, him grow and maybe try some new things, especially like, again, I am over the moon excited about seeing tenant, but you, you know, at a certain point, we're going to have such a strong sense of what Christopher Nolan's sensibilities are that we're going to get tired of them. And not like necessarily in a bad way. I'm just, you know, you're going to see enough of them. You're like, all right, well, kind of like Tarantino. Like, there are certain things I love about Quentin Tarantino. I'll be there day one for every single one of his movies. But there's certain things that I'm like kind of tired of dealing with in all of his movies too. So, you know, I, and I think it's up to the filmmakers and those auteurs to push themselves to kind of find new ways to realize those visions or, or whatnot. So, um, yeah, good conversation to be had. I, I do want to briefly hit on a, a subtopic here, the the overall impact of Inception. Uh, so the impact on blockbusters. So Inception was an instant box office and critical, critical success. It brought in $62.7 million on its opening weekend in the U.S., and then worldwide $829 million uh, by the time it concluded its theatrical run. And as of July of 2020, the film holds an 87% uh, fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, in many ways, I, I think, too, this this film, and we've already talked about this, the indie spirit with the indie spirit with kind of the, the makings of a large studio blockbuster, they, they kind of work together. It flies in the face of what blockbusters and I would say most of the post 2000s have done. Um, I mean, as you can see, especially today, with superhero movies everywhere. Everything's based off of a, a superhero comic book character or it's rebooting a franchise we already know. And Christopher Nolan really was going against the grain with Inception and continues to go against the uh, the the grain. But I do want to see, uh, Lauren, I'll, I'll throw this question to you first. You know, what lessons do you think studios actually took from the success of this film? Um. Well, I don't. I don't know what what they actually took from it, but I, what I would what I would hope they took from it is that you can take risks, you know, and to not be so so you know beholden to age old formulas that are cash grabs, but essentially don't influence anything cinematically, you know. Like so, I think moving the needle because what he did was he proved that you could make a mainstream blockbuster movie and have it actually be about something you know, besides just explosions and things, you know, you know, uh, th- you know, things happening in that sense. But um, I think um, 
what Joe kind of said at the top of the of the show here, you know, that she's really drawn to original storytelling. And I think that we'd be surprised how many audiences feel the same way. You know, I think good storytelling appeals to everyone, you know, and I think um, taking on on those kinds of risks and taking on original storytelling um, is very important. Um, and, and, you know, and you can package it a different way, you know, you can put a hundred million dollars behind a really good idea, you know, um, not necessarily every movie needs that, but, but we prove that it can be done here and that audiences will turn out for it. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, what, what do you think? I mean, like just looking at like how, how big blockbusters have been made, marketed, you know, since t- 2010. Like, from what you can tell, like, what sorts of takeaways do you think studios took from Christopher Nolan's uh, the success of Inception? Uh, to me, it feels like they didn't really take the the pri- the primary hopeful lesson from the from Inception, which is that, like Laurent was saying, a a, a unique interesting thoughtful story uh paired with great performances great visuals all the whole nine yards it are what people is are kind of craving instead i think the they took away let's make big spectacles um with scores that sound like bomb uh mm-hmm. and have like uh that are kind of like i don't know cash grabby not necessarily based on original unique concepts, but Hey, you know, we can follow. It's hard to say that inception made a formula, but I think they, they, a lot of studios with poor intentions took the, the, the kind of, I hate like like a snapshot of what they thought inception was and why they thought it worked um, which wasn't for like the reasons where I, where I think we think it actually worked. Um, and just like make it all about the special effects and how cool it looks. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I wish I I'm hoping that we're going to get more, uh, thoughtful storytelling paired with, you know, lots more, lots of dynamic action and everything. And not every film needs to be inception. I mean, we need our fast nine, you know, we need like films Mm -hmm. like that, but Justice you know, for Han. It would be nice to see more films like Inception. <laughs> <laughs> Justice for Han. That's all I got to say, say to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think those are. Um, I think I, I. I certainly tend to lean more. I, I like. I like that, Laurent. You gave us like the best case. Like, here's what we wanted them to learn. Alex, like, is you're you're rolling out saying here's what they probably learned. Joe, what's your take <laughs> on this one? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm kind of in the middle of that. I. I, I think that they, I, I, again, I just am like desperate constantly for studios to take risks. I mean, I get frustrated with Disney because they have more money than anybody needs in the world. And they just keep turning out all these superhero films. And there's nothing really inherently wrong with those. I'm just like, you could be making, you could be financing all these little indies and take a loss and like, it wouldn't even register. So, I, I mean, I th- think... I have been surprised by uh, Warner Brothers, at least occasionally since Inception came out. Like I I took a look at their releases and they had, I mean, they had a few that ended up becoming bigger, kind of a surprise. Like I know they did. Conjuring came out of that 
after after period they contagion came out of that of that period so i think that they like try at least a little i mean they still have sherlock holmes and harry potter and all those but occasionally they will like release something gravity um, oh yeah mm. so they maybe are doing a little bit better as a major studio in terms of taking a few risks i don't know it's a another big question that frustrates me pretty easily so i i i just i want more original content i want more original stories i want people to give money to people who have big ideas absolutely um so i, I think i'm gonna here's here's kind of my take and i hope it brings it all home uh because i think we're all kind of on the same page coming from different angles here was here's my perception when you really take a look at you know, the success of Inception, especially if you look at how Christopher Nolan's feature films have all been marketed since. I think, and I think we've seen the rise of this in the 2010s. I mean, not saying that direct auteur-driven cinema hasn't been a thing since the beginning of, you know, movie making. But I think that studios have worked very, very hard to build these big mega franchises. Um, we're seeing with all the, uh, the superhero films. We've seen Warner Brothers try it with DC um, uh, Fast and Furious is one from Universal. Event films, blockbusters, right? Big tent poles, and they're saying we want to make we want to make them we want to make the tent poles bigger. Uh, there gonna be fewer of them. Uh, just collectively fewer movies. We're going to pour more money into the tent pole films, and then you know that means fewer you know risks on the indie side. Uh, but we're ta- but the risks we're taking are actually huge. And at one point, I remember it was five or so years ago. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg called it an unsustainable business model. Uh, because there's like at a certain point there's going to be too many consecutive failures, and if you lose like one tentpole movie, that could set you out for an entire quarter. You know, at least from a business perspective. So why am I talking about tentpole models and 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 that? Because I think that what we've seen in the rise of in 2010s is the brand, um, the MCU. Uh, we see the DCU. Um, you know, uh, but I think a big part of that has actually been marketing the director as their own brand. So what we see with Christopher Nolan, the, the lesson I, one of the lessons I see them taking, and we see this if you look at the marketing campaign for Interstellar and even Dunkirk, like they're marketing as look at this indie. We're supporting our 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 visionary filmmakers by giving them tons of money to make these huge tentpole models, and they do it. So, but there are fewer of these people they're doing it with. So Christopher Nolan being like the the poster child, but you're also seeing you have to think about Quentin Tarantino's movies, the way they market his movies. Um, the way you market, uh, I, you know, Joe, I really like how you mentioned um, The Conjuring. I think that especially what, once we get past like the 2012, 2013 part of that decade, you start to see James Wan get pushed up on that pedestal. Where they're, if, they, if it's not based on a pre-existing property, what they're banking on is marketing the director as the brand. That's the thing people are buying into. Okay, it's not a superhero or pre-existing property. Well, we know Christopher Nolan can open seats, so let's market the heck out of Christopher Nolan and the cast. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, and I don't think that's, that's not the worst lesson you could take away from it, but I do feel like we've seen a lot more of that. Less attention, like with with the risk, quote unquote, riskier studio tentpole films. There's been a lot more emphasis on the director and the cast than there has been on um, the actual idea, the story. Um, and again, not the worst thing, but I will say the problem I see with that though is again, you're 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 still playing into the big tentpole model. Throw bigger and bigger budgets behind fewer films, um, which again leaves less room for indies and and like a lot of the other voices that are trying to make a break in the film scene. So at least that's that's kind of my my perspective. And that's not like I, I wouldn't say with comp you know with confidence that's exactly the conversation that happens in these executive marketing meetings. But I do think that's a trend I see. If you look at 
go look at the follow-up campaigns of his other original non-IP movies, and like the, the campaign is almost exactly the same. And you see the same tactics rolled out for um, Django Unchained. You see the same tactics rolled out for The Hateful Eight, and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood most recently. Uh, again, those are not bad things to market, though. I think my bigger concern is that they're doing they're marketing fewer films like that. They're they're put they're they're basically putting fewer directors up on these huge pedestals. And there's a lot of people who aren't getting that sort of credit or attention. And then everyone else who's trying to like just carve a name out for themselves or making superhero movies um, until they can kind of get that same level of clout. So anyway, uh, that's just kind of my, my take there. Uh, I, I hope, I hope we get away from tentpole uh, blockbuster model filmmaking because I'm tend to, to, I think all of us, you know, kind of resonate with what Joe said about, Hey, what if instead of making one $250 million movie, you made 10, $25 million movies. And you know, that's, it's, that's 10 other movies you could be making with all and $25 million for a lot of like up and coming filmmakers would be like a dream come true. Uh, mm-hmm. so please, <laughs> so there's a lot of room there and it see, it would seem to me, uh, again, I'm not one of these executives, but it would seem to me that the risk is actually lower because if you have two of those fail, well, that's still a lot smaller of a failure that you can read and you make like five of those that actually make a lot of money. Well, yeah, you lost money on two of them, but there's five others that made a lot of money. So really you're looking at a net positive versus you make one, um, you make one movie, the Lone Ranger. Here's a good example of a Gore Verbinski, who at one point was like one of these hot up and a hot tours until he made enough flops. Um, but yeah, like he mm. makes the Lone Ranger and it flops tremendously. Well, all of a sudden Gore Verbinski is not really making movies anymore, at least not on that scale. And uh, also like the movie lost the studio hundreds of millions of dollars. So it, it just seems like a very high risk. Uh, and yes, the rewards are greater and I'm sure it looks great on those quarterly earnings calls, which I'm sure is a lot of what's driving the decision-making there. So, well, yeah, we were running way long. So let's just get to the big question and then we'll close out. Big question and we'll keep the section short. You have to ask the question. You can't talk about Inception if you don't discuss does the top spin or does it fall or does it matter? Let's discuss and we'll start with Joe on this one. It falls. I'm an optimist. It falls. However, I do appreciate the question because, again, I I like it not only as a shock moment, but I also like it as something as a question that's posed to the audience. And I think it is something that helps make the film more memorable. Everybody, or a lot of people at least, still talk about the ending of Sopranos just because it's this huge question mark. I think it's sort of similar here because you can really get into, well, he saw their faces this time or they cut the scene this way. So I, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. I think it falls. You think it falls? Okay, uh, good deal. Yeah. All right, so we got one optimist for the group. <laughs> so, so one, one uh, uh, in twenty twenty, I'll take it. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how much optimism we have left at the table. Leron, does it spin? Does it fall? Does it matter? Man, so you see, I'm gonna take the political approach here. Uh, I'm gonna be a po- <laughs> the politician. Um, I, you know, I, it's obviously. I think how you perceive the ending says a lot about yourself. Honestly, you know, like you know, like she said, it, it's a glass half full, half empty perspective. You know. Um, do you, do you, do you have a need for this to have closure in that way? Or are you a cynic that says like, no, it's all whatever. I think the ambiguity is more interesting. Mm. Um, I think not having an answer creates a more ripe, thoughtful discourse following the feature. And I think that's intentional. 
I think it's intentional for us to keep having a conversation post credits, you know, did it. And there's enough of there's enough evidence either way to support your cause, however you want to see it, however you want to interpret it. And I think that, again, is all very intentional so that any everyone can go satisfied, you know, because you can believe what you want to and you're not wrong. There's not really a wrong answer here. Um, I, I, I'd like to think that it falls. I mean, you know, I'd like to believe that it does. But um, but I, I respect him for not giving me a definitive answer. It honestly really gave the movie a big, I mean, if, if you want to talk about big impacts, it gave the movie way, the, the legs are so much longer. If It's much more, it, just the whole film is more interesting if you don't answer that question, right? And um, I'm thinking about like recently the the Watchmen HBO's Watchmen wrapped up uh, at the end of last year, and and the showrunner David Lindelof was talking about, and I, I will not spoil that show, but uh, the ending is kind of similar. They they leave it on a question where they set it up where it could go either way, and uh, like they just leave it there. And 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 David Lindelof is like, no, it's not a cliffhanger. He's just like, but I I would rather audiences just make up their own mind, and what whatever they decide, whatever they land on is is you know, kind of up to them. And it's going to tell them more about their perspective than uh, it does the show. And I just think it, yeah, it creates a healthier, more interesting, more nuanced discourse around the thing you're watching. Um, and I think Inception absolutely did that. And I think that's part of what's given it that huge impact we've had over the years. Um, Alex, does it fall? Does yeah. it spin? Does it matter? Okay. I, I am in the, so on the one hand, I think it falls. On the other hand, I don't think it matters because mm-hmm. The, t- the concept of the totem, which I know Cobb breaks all the rules, right? The concept of the totem is that it it's your totem. No one else touches it. It was Mal's first. So that's already, it basically already defeats the purpose because it was never fully his to begin with. So like the fact that it does or doesn't spin whenever it gets touched by him, people know how it works. I think it then just mean, it doesn't really end up signifying anything by the end of the film. That's more my like, Oh, it gotta be, you know, looking at the plot, you know, (laughs) exposition, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Thematically. I think I love the ambiguous ending. I love that. I had like a two hour conversation about a 10 second piece of film, (laughs) like a 10 second little clip at the end of that film um, that I wouldn't have had otherwise if, if the top had, toppled if it had a clearer indication that it wobbled if there had been um more like signs throughout that this was going one way or another is it a dream isn't a dream i i love the ambiguity of it i think that's one of the most special parts of this film uh you know i think my heart is set on that uh it you know, it falls in that Cobb is objectively in, in the reality in which he needs to be. But I do like, there is a heavy, heavy case for him being so deep down that he doesn't, he's not in reality anymore. So, but that's where I'm at on it. <laughs> right. Like why do his children look the same? They still, even in the, they the look clip, the they, same they, in the they, same they, outfits. Yeah. Every I know. Time, like, I'm sorry. That's the, like, the, I, I was shouting a lot yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no. And that's, that was one of those things I didn't really ever think about before. But when I was watching it this time, I was like, I, I, like, listen, they're wearing, it's not that like they're the same age. Cause again, 
going back to the ambiguous nature of the way they edit the film, we don't know how long he's been gone. We don't know how long he's been away from his kids. So if it's been like a year, sure, they can look about the same age. But it's the fact that they're in the same outfits and the same pose that he sees them every time. And again, that's also yep. a little bit of the – that's the beauty of like how he stages things. So I'm glad we have a table full of optimists. I um, I think I think it falls. Now here's – I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole of internet theories because we could have a whole nother – podcast about the crazy theories around inception and guys, oh yeah I, I, there's so many of them but a taste please yeah. i would like one <laughs> well alex you really got ahead of me because i was going to bring up the fact that the premise is inherently flawed on the totem yes. because because Cobb is already breaking the rule when he introduces it so that is not his totem that is his dead wife's totem the dead wife who said that they're still in a dream when she killed herself so I don't think that's a trustworthy source. The, uh, the other Absolutely. Thing, so I think you have to question the entire premise. And when you start when you start playing that game where you're deconstructing some of the premise, then you're like, wow, I really don't know what's real and what's not anymore. And then it seems more logical that it's a dream. Now, that said, I will bring up the one other theory that I find compelling enough to convince me that he is not in a dream. Have you guys, any of you guys heard or read about the wedding ring theory? Oh, no. Mm -mm. You have to pay nope. stupid close attention. So this is people who at some point in the last 10 years like would go through and freeze frame and probably shot by shot the movie. Oh, my God. He, based on this theory, and I, I, I kind of read about it before I rewatched, I, I watched this film twice for this podcast, and I read about it between first viewing number one and viewing number two, is that when he is in the dream sequences in this movie, he is wearing a wedding ring. When he is in the quote-unquote reality, he is not wearing the wedding ring. Um, and he is not wearing the wedding ring in the last scene of the movie. So mm. it's, yeah, but that's the thing you would like, they don't point that out in the text of the movie at all. It's purely visual and it's like, it, and you have to really be watching for it. But it's one of those things I, I kind of wonder like Christopher Nolan, did he like say, I'm going to sneak this in and see how many people notice. Are people just reading into it too much? I don't know. And that's what's like, again, speaks to just the power of that, leaving that question open-ended. Um, people can kind of draw their own conclusions or look for their own theories. And I, I did find the wedding ring as Cobb's totem to be um, compelling, more interesting even than like the whole premise is a lie because the totem's not his. So I think that uh, he's probably in reality at the end, um, though the case could be made otherwise. I also think it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, I do think part of what this movie is trying to get at is your reality is what you make it. And whether or not he's actually in the quote unquote real world at the end of the movie, that is what he has chosen to be his, his reality. Uh, he has decided that whether he's in reality or he's two levels deep, this is where he's settling. Uh, and that is a reality without his wife, uh, unfortunately, but um, it is one that he believes to be true. So I think there's like a hint of that, that kind of deconstruction postmodern touch of that postmodern idea that like it, it, Reality is what you make it. You can choose your own reality sort of, sort of thing. And um, so at the end of the day, I think when you're looking at it from that character perspective, no, I don't think it really matters at all. But well, guys, we have talked about so many things uh, and we are running very long. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate you all taking the extra time out of your day to, to join us and talk about Inception. So we're going to wind down by asking two questions. We're going to first start by asking the question, do we think this is one of the definitive blockbusters of the 2010s and do you think it's going to hold up in 10 years do you think uh, that this is going to be one kind of like star wars or the terminator or you know any number you know count the classics is, do you think it'll be one of those movies uh, and alex i'll actually start with you on this one yeah i mean yeah it, it's so influential it's like remark it's like almost hard to explain how influential it is and especially influential on like 
young hearts and minds, the next generation of creators who are looking to see out in the world that their unique concepts for a story actually can be a, a feature film led by very prominent actors with like really big budgets. Like it, it's, it's saying that there are still root, there is still room in the world for unique and beautiful ideas. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to hold it up. I'm going to say it holds up 10 years later. And I, I was honestly, I hate saying surprised because everyone in like internet culture tends to dunk on things after they get really, really big and blown up. I don't feel like Inception had that quite a big of backlash besides, you know, some casual satire from like South Park or Family Guy or The Simpsons or something. Um, but I, I think that it's it's absolutely held up. And the fact that um, I was surprised with how much I still liked it um, in the year 2020, I... Yeah, I think it speaks for itself. That's always a good sign because uh, as a adulthood has, has at least shown me, there's a lot of movies I loved 10 years ago that I watched today. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I can oh, still God. like this movie. Oh, God, painful, painful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, LaRon Chapman, does this film hold up uh, today, 10 years later, and will it hold up in 10 more years? Uh, yes, I think it absolutely does. I think um, I think it is the, I mean, what you would have, the matrix of our time, you know what I mean? The matrix of a new generation or what have you. Um, but I think in a different way, though, you know, not in the way that will spawn sequels necessarily, but will spawn similar approaches to filmmaking, if you will. So, um, as you mentioned, like it being this big, major blockbuster, it kind of redefined what that could be. You know, it doesn't just have to be a Transformer movie or like the 17th iteration of Jason. You know, like it can be this think piece film with great ideas, original storytelling and have all the same spectacle that we, we you would get in a Star Wars film or a Marvel film or what have you. Um, and basically you can have your cake and eat it too. And I think that that's what I think Nolan's impact is on mainstream cinema. Have your cake and eat it too. Make a smart mm -hmm. movie that you can also uh, eat some uh, cake-flavored popcorn with. I like it. I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, uh, what do you think? Does it hold up today? And what hold up in 10 more years? I think it does hold up. And I honestly was a little surprised at how well it did. Um, as far as 10 years from now, yeah, I think it will be one that we kind of look back on, especially as his career continues. I'm just really interested to see what movies look like in 10 years. Um, and like somebody mentioned, I think in our initial conversation, how many, how movies are going to change considering, you know, a uh, global pandemic, a uh, global civil rights movement. I'm just really interested to see like how that's reflected in movies over the next 10 years. I don't know. It's hard to say. <laughs> Yeah, none of us have a crystal ball, and I, I actually really do like that you mentioned that. Um, you know, we, we, twenty two. I mean, I I think the last couple of years in particular, they, like the culture is moving um, in a lot of different directions on a lot of different in a lot of different areas. So it is you can't ever have a crystal ball. I mean, I I don't know if we could have anticipated you know so, sort of the types of conversations we'd be having in our larger culture and by extension our pop culture in twenty ten, saying hey we're going to be living through 1968 all over again in 2020, except for this time there's a pandemic involved. Um, I don't think we, I don't think we, none, none of us could have called that. Uh, and I think that's um, really insightful, um, an insightful thought 
something to keep in mind that, you know, it, if, if things stay on track as they are, you know, if, if, if 2010 and the way the movies were made stayed the same for 10 years, then yeah, Inception, obviously 20, 30 years from now still, in, uh, you know, is going to be impactful. But with the way that things are shaping up now, and I even think about, you know, the, the way the, the theatrical experience was already being changed dramatically yeah. before the pandemic, which seems to be accelerating kind of how people watch movies. Um, and, with, and Christopher Nolan being so closely tied to the theatrical, the traditional theater going experience. Um, I think it's a good question, Joe, and, and a good thing to keep in mind. Like, don't don't get too arrogant and and trying to predict the future. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I, I think this is one of those movies that more to Alexander's point, this is um, like, like this is a movie that, if nothing else, impacted a, a generation of up and coming millennial filmmakers who said, whoa, I, I can get. Uh, I can pull a Christopher Nolan um, uh, or, you know, or, or even look at other directors who've done similarly. Ryan Johnson's another one, you know, like make a couple of small indie films and then through sheer luck um, plus a lot of hard work, you inherit a blockbuster and that that blockbuster mm-hmm. sets you up to have a successful career. I think that I think that's exciting. Um, and I think we are seeing some of that. I mean, I'm thinking about like Ta- Taika Waititi and how he's on the rise right now and Thor Ragnarok giving him that extra boost to get, you know, um, to get kind of the buy-in to make like Jojo Rabbit or, or you know, whatever his, mm. uh, you know, other films are. And so I think that, you know, talking about the impact again, just I think no one has carved out a path that while I think few will follow, that there will be people who follow. Um, and I think I really like that Alex talked about, yeah, it's the film, it's the impact it's having on the individuals that I think might might really be the legacy, you know, 20, 30 years from now, seeing like, hey, this filmmaker, the the their Star Wars was Inception when they said, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to go figure out how to make movies, you know, and I, and I do mm-hmm. I, I do believe that there are enough people out there who received that sort of impact. So, um, all right, guys. Well, hey, great thoughts. Uh, last thing uh, before we close out the show today, I always love to do the alternate media recommendations. So what should you be watching, uh, playing, if you're playing video games or reading, if you want to uh, really continue down that Inception hype train, you like the story, you like the themes, you like the world, what's the next thing you do? Uh, so, Lauren Chapman, I'll actually start with you on this one. What is another thing you would recommend uh, for viewers out there who liked Inception? I'm going to briefly give you two. One of them is The the Old Guard, which just came out this uh, past Friday on Netflix with Charlie's Throne. Really big, high-concept action film. Um uh, female-driven uh, storytelling also has that kind of uh, heist heist crime aspect to it, but with a interesting supernatural element to it that I won't um, uh, spoil. Um, but definitely worth a visit. Also, there was a film I caught. I think it's a little. It might actually have been out longer than I in maybe a couple of years, but it's called The Perfection. And it's another one, as far as storytelling devices goes, just very intricate in the way that it kind of keeps pulling the rug from underneath you. Um, Kind of just dealing with two uh, prodigy musical um, women who might inadvertently be in a very bad, seedy sex trafficking situation. Um, And they might be able to vanquish uh, the patriarchal system. And I'm here for it. So. Vanquish that patriarchal system. <laughs> there. Uh, on that note, Alexandra Bohannon, what do you recommend people uh, watch, read, or play after finishing Inception? 
Sure. Um, yes, I mentioned before, I'll say it again, Paprika. It is um, it is a film that I know Nolan had to have watched in watching um, t- to see the film, the, the final product visual language on the screen uh, for Inception. Um, and then I'm going to recommend a video game because I'm that person. And I'm going to also, I'm going to recommend the Persona series. I'm playing through uh, Persona 5 Royals right now. And it's kind of remarkable, the similarities in the conceptual formulation of a ragtag group of protagonists um, start breaking into people's minds to change their thoughts in order to uh, get results in the world that they want. Um, I mean, there's a lot of thematic similarities there. I mean, there are some differences. Um, I think the bad guys are badder and it's more clear that you're quote unquote, the good guys, which makes me actually appreciate uh, Inception's a bit muddy morality a bit more, honestly, because um, you're some uh, you're watching Cobb who has not necessarily the purest of motives for what he's doing. So, um, but yeah, I would totally recommend the Persona series. It's, it's so much fun. It's so wacky and it's just uh, really, really. Um, there's an anime of it too. So if you're not the sort to the to play a video game. Well, you can watch all the beautifully animated cutscenes uh, done together as an anime. I think it's only like twenty five episodes. So, and it's certainly shorter than the hundred hour uh, playtime of uh, yeah. which again is yes, great correct. if you're into a hundred hour playtime games. Uh, but they, they are very very large games. <laughs> great recommendations. Yes. I love it. I love any time we can get some video game recommendations in there. Uh, Joe. I'm going to recommend an oldie, but a goodie. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Truman Show. Yeah. Uh, it is so good. As a younger person watching it, it was just like blew my mind in terms of the visuals, the comedy. I just think it's so great. Everybody should watch The Truman Show if you haven't already. And then if you just want like an, another take on what is life or what's reality, Jacob's Ladder is always a good one, too. Oh yeah, Jacob Ladder is fantastic. Um, great recommends. Yeah, the Truman Show. I guess I didn't even think about that. That was still, uh, it was mid-ish. No, no, it was towards the end of the '90s, so it would have fallen in that same window, you know, of a couple of years. '98. '98. Yeah, yeah. So that's the same year as Dark City, I think. Yeah. So you're looking at, yeah, that I would put that right in line with the Matrix. And like, the, what is everyone in the ni- late '90s? We were trying to figure out what are we even doing here? Is it even matter? <laughs> <laughs> and then 9/11 happened, and that changed everything. But uh, it was, um, it was an interesting, really interesting time in cinema and yeah the Truman Show is one of the, the the more uplifting lovely beautiful sweet movies from that time I love that shit that movie um I am gonna put a couple out there uh I'm just, I am gonna echo uh Paprika and again I don't want to say uh you know to Alexander's point there's not a chance there's no way I, I just can't fathom he's never mentioned it as an influence but if you go watch Paprika some of the visual language in a couple of the scenes you I mean Inspired feels uh, like a very nice way to say he really stole. And I'm not against people stealing stuff from movies, but like there's certain sequences where you watch and you're like, wow, this is ri- he ripped it straight out of this movie. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, Paprika. It's a great film from the uh, legendary anime director Satoshi Kon. All of his films are great. But yeah, Paprika, I think, plays with the dreamality uh, quite a bit. Um, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Richard Linkletter's Waking Life. 
that's definitely the movie that if you've seen any of Richard Linklater's movies, is all about like waxing on about like talking through all the philosophical implications of something. And it's literally just a bunch of, oh, oh it's done rotoscope animation, um, which is uh, another uh, reason I really like it. So it allows them to kind of have a lot more fun with the kind of weird dreamy elements, uh, uh, elements, yeah, uh, the weird dreamy elements. Uh, so yeah, check that out, Waking Life. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. It's kind of hard to find, and it's a movie like most people haven't heard of. Uh, and lastly, I'm just going to make a pitch to studios out there because I know studio executives listen to the cinematic schematic every episode. Listen, guys. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. So I'm going to make the pitch right here. You guys want to figure out how to make another Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Just literally put him, put Freddy in like, it's not going to be Inception, but like a very Inception-esque type story but where Freddy Krueger's there trying to stop them every every step of the way. Like the, you have a group of protagonists who are in the dream world trying to accomplish something very specific. And Freddy is like the the projections just trying to stop. Them. I don't know. Make it a heist movie, though. It's got to be a heist movie with Freddy Krueger there, though, because I just I want more Freddy Krueger. But I also don't just want more recycled Freddy Krueger. Inception of a nightmare. Ooh. Oh, man, that that's a great title. Oh goodness! All right, well, they're out to the ether, and executives. uh, Laurent is a filmmaker. Uh, He's on call. We have scriptwriters all on this podcast. We're all available. I mean, we're all in a pandemic right now, so give us a call. We can make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, so I would uh, not be a. All right, well, everyone, I think that, wow, we went on for two full hours about Inception, something that was originally supposed to be 90 minutes. So, again, um, Laurent, uh, Alexandra, Joe, thank you all so much for your time. Uh, we're going to close up by letting listeners know where they can keep up with you and any of the things you're working on online if they want to uh, see all the cool things you're working on. So, uh, Laurent Chapman, we'll start with you. Where can people keep up with you? And I hear that you have a movie coming out on Blu-ray soon. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. Uh, Three years ago, I shot this little tiny movie here in Oklahoma City called You People. Um, And it's finally the little engine that could journey all the way to distribution. Um, It comes out August 18th on DVD, Blu-ray, Voodoo, and then various Walmart departments, as they're telling me, hopefully in my state, because it'd be really awkward if it's like in like Indiana. And I'm like, great. Well, I'm not driving to any to get a DVD. I'll just order it online. But um, yeah, so you can look you can look forward to having your own copy of that. Um, but you can follow me on uh, Freaky AF Film um, on Instagram for regular updates on all of my crazy production um, endeavors, um, or follow me on Facebook at Laron Chapman. Fantastic, thanks, Laron. Uh, Joe Light, where can people keep up with you online? Uh, I'm writing a lot still for No Film School, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Joe underscore Lightly. Joe Lightly. I love that, by the way, the Lightly. (laughs) Thank you. Nice (laughs) nice touch. Uh, Alexandra Bohannon, where can people keep up with you on the interwebs? You can find, uh, you can keep up with me right now. I have a website. It's alexanderbohannon.com. I'm going to be real. It just has a link to my LinkedIn. So, hey, if you ever want to chit chat there, I'm fine with it. Um, (laughs) And uh, definitely go and follow um, everyone mentioned on the show today. 
Um, awesome. And uh, of course, you can keep up with all of our work here at the Cinematropolis over at the Cinematropolis website, thecinematropolis.com, or um, you know, over on our social media channels uh, on Twitter at the Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. If you're listening to this podcast, if, you, if you've stuck through the two hour conversation uh, of Inception and you have enjoyed it, please go give us a rating or a review, whether it be on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could also subscribe for future episodes. Um, or if you're doing it on Spotify, give us a rating and follow us there we would love uh to be a part of your normal podcast rotation in the year 2020 um you can find me personally tweeting about uh lots of films and video games and sometimes tv shows over on twitter at c masters talk that's letter c masters talk ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us for the special 10th anniversary episode of inception uh we'll catch you all again next time in 